This is a reading from the book of Mark. As he went out into the street, a man came running up, greeting him with great reverence and asked, good teacher, what must I do to get eternal life? Jesus said, why are you calling me good? No one is good, only God. You know the commandments, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat, honor your father and mother. He said, teacher, I have from my youth kept them all. Jesus looked him hard in the eye and loved him. He said, there's one thing left. Go sell whatever you own and give it to the poor. All your wealth will then be heavenly wealth. And come follow me. The man's face clouded over. This was the last thing he expected to hear. And he walked off with a heavy heart. He was holding on tight to a lot of things and not about to let go. Looking at his disciples, Jesus said, do you have any idea how difficult it is for people who have it all to enter God's kingdom? The disciples couldn't believe what they were hearing, but Jesus kept on. You can't imagine how difficult. I'd say it's easier for a camel to go through the needle's eye than for the rich to get into God's kingdom. That said, the disciples back on their heels. Then who has a chance at all, they asked. Jesus was blunt. No chance at all if you think you can pull it off by yourself. Every chance in the world if you let God do it. Peter tried another angle. We left everything and followed you. Jesus said, mark my words, no one who sacrifices house, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, land, whatever, because of me and the message will lose out. They'll get it all back, but multiplied many times in homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and land, but also in troubles. And then the bonus of eternal life. This is once again the great reversal. Many who are first will end up last and the last first. Thank you, Ann Wagner. So just out of curiosity, did uh, have any of you ever had the pleasure of sitting through a timeshare presentation? <laughs> right. All right, have any of you had the pleasure of a high pressure uh, car sales situation? Okay, very good. Have any of you had the pleasure of an in-home sales thing? Perhaps it's a vacuum cleaner. That's usually the famous one. Yeah, right. I used to sell uh, Cutco cutlery in college and a little bit in seminary, which I love. I'm still a Cutco man, right? So if you have Cutco and they're dull, you see me. We'll get those sharpened for you right now. So anyway, part of the deal, the forever guarantee, but I digress. So, <laughs> uh, you know, Sometimes when we think about high-pressure situations, uh, people who go to church sometimes speak of church as being a high-pressure sales situation when it comes to money. And so that's what we're looking at today. And this passage, uh, among others, uh, have been weaponized against good folk like you to get more money out of your wallet, usually to support the local church. And the reason I know that that happens is because I've been guilty of it. Uh, I've been a uh, pastor of this church by the end of this month. Um, October 31st will mark the end of my 22nd year as pastor, which is hard to believe. But when I came here, I was just 10 years old and uh, kind of the Doogie Hauser of Christian ministry. <laughs> you know, when I came here, um, I was 29 and I was out of seminary for four years or so. And there were some things that I hadn't thought through. 
Life does that to us. Hopefully, we're growing uh, through life, right? Hopefully, you have a more nuanced, deeper belief and understanding of God and theology and life in general now than you did five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, etc. And so, there were some things that I taught out of a sense of, you know, good faith and didn't think I was doing anything wrong. But now that I look at it, I recognize that I actually was falling into a trap that Jesus is actually highlighting here. And I'll never forget it. Uh, it was January of the year 2000 uh, when I did this series uh, using a guy named John Maxwell and his resource. John Maxwell is now kind of a corporate leadership guy. He's probably retired now, but I'm sure he still speaks. Before that, he was a big deal pastor in Southern California. And his leadership books are actually quite good. He has, he's an amazing storyteller and his leadership principles. He has stacks of books and they're really fun to read. And he has a lot of good things to say. Uh, and one of the things that he uh, peddled, because he also was also famous for selling absolutely everything he thought <laughs> and would spend a good amount of time selling his stuff as he's trying to teach you his stuff, but he would sell uh, stewardship uh, resources to churches. And one of the ones that was among his most effective is one that I used both in northern uh, Illinois before I came here, and then I used it here not long after I came and there's one line in there, which I still believe in and love. And the, the phrase of it is, if God is not Lord of all, all parts of us, then God is not Lord at all. If God is not Lord of all, God is not Lord at all, which I agree. That makes sense. Our goal, our aspiration as Jesus people, Jesus following people, spiritual people is how do I get more and more of my life as best as I know under the leadership of God? That's an ongoing lifelong process. It's something we commit to periodically and we say to remind ourselves, but it's a process. We don't just say it once and it takes care of everything. It's not how life works. As our lives change, as we mature, we come at things in new ways to think, and we have to revisit this whole principle all of the time. The problem was is that um, one part of the, the, the deal was is we use this passage at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where people are primarily religious people are coming up to Jesus, and they're getting on him about whatever. They had a list of things that they like to get on Jesus about. And Jesus just looked at him and said, you know what? You think you're doing all this stuff, but at the end of the day, you know, when, when you meet God face to face, he's going to look at you and say, I never knew you. I don't even know who you are. Be away from me. And the gist of what Jesus was saying to these religious leaders was, you think you've got it all right because you figured out the answers to the questions, but your heart is not in any way aligned with God. You've totally missed the point. You may pass the test but you're not really getting the whole thing. And he has a parable that he teaches about that. And so using that as an example, saying that whole, you know, you say, Lord, Lord, with your lips, but really, I don't even know you. The verse was weaponized, uh, tying in some passages from the Old Testament that says, trust the Lord with the full tithe. Tithe technically means 10%. And so the pitch was, we want to see people give and trust God with 10% of your income and pour it into the church because God says so. And God uh, even says, put me to the test. The only time where God ever says that, and he does in the Old Testament. 
and says, see if I will not unleash heaven for you. So the idea is you do this, God will do that under the idea of God is either Lord of all or not Lord at all. And if God is not Lord at all, the words you're going to hear someday are away from me, you evildoers. Lots of fear wrapped up in that. And because it was fearful, John Maxwell had a cheesy but fairly brilliant idea that he encouraged churches to do, which we did. <laughs> it sounds so crazy now. But we would offer people a safety net. Uh, if they would try out this tithing thing, I can't remember if it was 30, 60, or 90 days, but it was something like that, uh, that we would guarantee that if they did not experience some kind of blessing from God, however that might be, we'd return their money. <laughs> a money-back guarantee <laughs> based on God. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. And in Illinois, when I, when I did this whole thing, I um, mean, I would never do this anymore, but back in the day, uh, nobody took us up on the offer. I did it here. Somebody took us up on the offer. <laughs> Can you believe it? So we had to cut a check forever, however much, because the person says, man, I did this for 60 days. I didn't see squat. <laughs> so it's like, oh, well, sorry. You know, and it did that. Well, this whole idea uh, is definitely enculturated in the way that we think about everything. Because we live in a capitalistic society, we're in America, can-do America, where you get what you work for. It is the way we think about everything. I only get something if I've earned it or if I've deserved it. That's our approach to everything, including God. And so this idea of financial support or stewardship uh, can very easily move into that zone. I've known people over the course of my life, over my entire life, that treated giving to things that matter to God, the church, the poor, etc., cetera, uh, that they treated it as transaction, and they would swear by it. They would say, you know, my experience is I give that 10%, God always blesses it more than I gave. And they would tell you story after story. So it's kind of a conundrum. How do we make sense of this? Well, here's the thing. This is the odd part. There's a reason why people experience blessing when they're generous with their, financial, with their finances. The reason is simply this. If right now um, I asked you all to just, if you don't already, if, if, uh, if I asked you to make a commitment right now, uh, that starting in January, uh, you're going to give the full 10% because God said so, which by the way, that's taken way out of context. But anyway, uh, if I said you, you were going to do that and you said yes, if I twisted your arms enough to do that very thing, here's what would happen between now and January. You would look over your budgets very carefully. You would do everything you can to keep that commitment. And my hunch is you would tighten up your ship. You might, for 30 days, keep track of every dollar spent, which every financial planner says to do. You would find out where you are wasting money. You would look and see how you can make that big ask affordable based on what kind of money you have coming in. You know what's going to happen when you start to get your financial house in order? You're going to feel a lot better about everything. All of a sudden, you get to that point, and you realize that you don't have as much stress because you've actually paid attention <laughs> to things that you should have been paying attention to all along. 
You'll probably end up saving more. You won't be as tied to debt. You probably won't throw away as much money as you thought you were. You'll pay attention to all those little uh, subscriptions that show up on your phone and your cable and all that stuff. And all of a sudden, you figured out how to live within your means in a way that actually makes sense. People experience the blessing of financial stewardship because financial stewardship is inherently blessing oriented. And you're going to feel better about what you're doing with your money because you're sending it to things that actually matter a lot and make the world a better place. So it's a pretty easy guarantee to make most of the time. But there's something that's way off. And the thing that's way off is actually what Jesus is getting to in this passage. Get a little context. There's a rich guy. There weren't too many rich guys in antiquity in Jesus' time. And these rich people at that time uh, were looked at as uh, benefactors uh, in their culture. It was assumed that they were rich because God had blessed them. And like God is supposed to do for all people, they would dole out money and support for the beneficiaries who were usually very poor people. And so they felt like gods as they walked around and helped whatever they could. And yet we know from different measures from antiquity that the number of people who were extremely wealthy compared to the rest of the people, it was even smaller than it is today. We talk about the one percenters today. Well, we're talking about the 0.01 percenters back then. I mean, that, that was how strong the disparity was. And similar to what we have today, oftentimes the people who generate that kind of wealth did not get that kind of wealth by being generous to the people that got them that wealth in the first place. And that's still true today. You know, in the Gilded Age, uh, before the uh, stock market crashed and stopped everything in 1929, we had a massive income disparity in America. We didn't see that income disparity at that level until right before the 2008 beginning of the recession. And we're starting to see the same thing now. In response to this income disparity, uh, unions were created to make sure that people were treated fairly, both in compensation, benefits, et cetera, et cetera. And that helped a lot until the 1970s. Once the 1970s hit, uh, the people in power figured out ways, loopholes, et cetera, et cetera, to soften those things, to water them down so they didn't have as much impact. Uh, you can look this stuff up uh, on your own time. Since the 1970s, say 1972 till present, so 50 years, the Income of most American workers, like 90% of the people, have remained absolutely flat. That doesn't mean that, um, that you don't see a raise in you know, minimum wage or whatever. It means that the spending power of those dollars has remained exactly the same with very little fluctuation over 50 years. And in that same time period, the wealthiest 10% in our United States, their income has increased 20%. And the top 1% in the United States has increased 30% over the last 50 years. We still have the same problems, which suggests to me that this financial thing is a human being problem, that those who have more want more. Those who have more and this is statistically true, give less. Do you know that's true? 
that in terms of proportion of income, middle-class America and lower give at a much higher rate than any of those people above them. In fact, the higher you go in terms of income or prosperity, the less people give. That has been a statistically true statement for decades. There's a problem here. What is Jesus getting at with this guy? Well, here's a guy who thinks that he's been blessed by God with his wealth, that somehow it was God that gave him this wealth and not considering all the other things. And of course, he's going to think that because everybody's telling him and treating him like he is God. <laughs> They're dependent on him. They're grateful to him for all the wonderful things that he does for them. And so he feels all wonderful about it. And he goes to Jesus. And what does he do? It's fascinating what he does. This guy of power and import, he falls at Jesus' feet commentators will tell you, that's weird. That's weird. He falls at his feet and says, good teacher. And Jesus won't have it. Don't call me good. Who else are we going to call good if not Jesus? Jesus says, don't call me good. Only God is good. Why? Why is Jesus saying that? This is why. This guy lives by his title. He knows he's a big deal in his community. He flaunts it. He walks around knowing that he is a wealthy man and expects to be treated as such. He lives in a world, which is still our world today, of hierarchy and title, where you matter depending on what letters are after your name. And he was very excited to use that wherever he went. So as he comes to Jesus, he's giving him title. He's saying to you, I respect you, Jesus, as good. You are a big deal, Jesus. In other words, he is trying to play the game the only way he knows how to play it, which is in a hierarchical kind of a sense. And he's saying to Jesus, I get you, man. You're good. You're awesome. Just like me. I'm not quite equal to you. That's why I'm bowing down to you. But I'm letting you know, I know who you are and how awesome you are. Just saying that out loud. So everybody knows that I know that. He's playing the title game, the prestige game. And Jesus won't have anything to do with it. He's not, he's not arguing his goodness here. He's saying the whole system that this guy represents is bunk. It's not reality. It's something we created as human beings to keep our own order. And generally, the people at the top are the ones who make sure they control the deck to make sure that they get everything they want and need. Jesus is not challenging his goodness. He's just simply saying, don't call me good. Don't call yourself good either. The only good one present here is God's self. Don't let this confuse you with us being made in the image of God and called very good. Two different subjects entirely. Jesus wanted to level the situation because this guy loves living in an elevated position. So that's the first thing is Jesus challenges the assumption of hierarchy. And then the second thing he does when this guy asks, what do I have to do to win eternal life, to earn God's favor is what he's getting at. And so Jesus just starts describing what the way of faith looks like. And he rattles off a handful of the Ten Commandments. It's interesting that he didn't offer one that probably maybe didn't matter to this guy, but he didn't mention anything about coveting, wanting something that he didn't already have. And maybe he didn't bother putting that in there because 
this guy could afford anything he wanted. I don't know. It's interesting that he, that's just a little nerd moment for you, but I think it's curious that he left that one out. And the guy proudly says, I've been a good Christian my whole life. I started going to church when I was just two weeks old. I was baptized in fourth grade. I'm a pastor's kid, kind of like my deal, right? <laughs> I mean, he rattles all this stuff off about why we should be really respectful and impressed uh, with this guy. But Jesus recognizes there's something else going on with this guy, that he may have ticked all the boxes and done all the right behavior, and yet it was coming from the wrong place. It was coming on from a place of transaction, of I'm doing this so God will give me that. And boy, do we have a problem with that. Boy, do we struggle with that. I don't even have to ask because I already know that there have probably been times in your life uh, where even if you didn't believe in God, you did for a moment when it was hitting the fan. And I bet you were dealing like crazy to God in those moments. And it usually sounds like I'm going to clean up my act or I'm going to stop looking at that or I'm going to start investing in this or I'm going to be nicer or, or whatever. I might, even, I might even start going to church. You know, all these things that I hear uh, when it's really a crisis time and you're ready to deal with God. What does that tell us? That tells us that our paradigm is based in transaction. What Jesus is seeing here is this guy has a heart problem. The foundation is wrong. He's putting his trust in his money. He's putting his trust in his title. And that's what has to be corrected. So good news. This instruction to this guy is specific to this guy. Jesus is not telling all of you today to cash in your portfolios and make the check out the crosswalk <laughs> as much as we might appreciate that. That's not what's happening here. This is a specific request to this guy because that was where the problem was. He was wanting to, to have his favor with God, simply base, keep God out there like, like he's made a contract with somebody, but his heart remained unchanged. The thing that was going to change that was for him to start trusting in the goodness of God instead of the power of his title and the size of his wallet. That's what needed to change. Him bowing down is fascinating. He had the power to bow down uh, when he wanted to, thinking it was going to get him something with Jesus, and yet he didn't have the power to bow down as a camel would to get through the eye of the needle gate in Jerusalem. That's Some scholars say that's the that's the play that Jesus is making here. It's that there was a gate in the city of Jerusalem called the Needle Gate. And the only way a camel could get through that gate was to somehow be trained enough to crouch down low enough and the kings and the wealthy people on those things to bow down in order to get through the gate. What Jesus is saying here is it requires a lot of humility. And that humility is so difficult to come by from people of wealth that it's nearly impossible. So if, what do we do with this then? How do we understand our relationship with money? If this guy who was wealthy and couldn't, go, and couldn't accept the invitation, which is one of the very few examples of when Jesus directly invited somebody to follow him, and he said no. I mean, that's pretty, pretty bold. What do we do with this? What is there for us to learn? I think the good news is still the good news here. And strangely, the behavior that was a result of fear is going to show up again, but from a different place. The good news, which is the gospel, is this. And it was refreshing good news in Jesus' day, as much as it was for Abraham when he first heard the call of God to start a new thing, as much as it is today. 
The gospel, which means good news, is this. You're loved by God. You're accepted by God. You can't do anything to make God love you more. You can't do anything to make God love you less. That is the baseline of everything. You can't screw that one up. You can't mess with God's love for you because it is a constant like gravity. It's just simply there. Let go of all of your structures, the way you think the world works and having to earn all this stuff. As far as it comes to how God feels about you, that's a done deal. <laughs> you, can't, you can't do anything to make it happen. It's already there. But what you can do is start to live into it. Start to really believe it and live out of that belief. Because that's when the magic happens. If you live your whole life in faith, and by the way, I know that there's an entire tradition that used fear to get people to somehow say yes to Jesus as if that would work. Well, it might create some good behavior, but it's not the gospel. The gospel is you are deeply loved by God. You are invited into this relationship with God to learn and grow what life is when you live in that way of being, that you are loved and so is everybody else around you. You are deeply and profoundly loved. And the more you start to believe this about yourself, that this is true of you, the more able you will be to actually love God in return. The more you are able to really believe that you are truly, fully loved just as you are, the more likely you will be to love yourself, the more likely you will be to love other people, the more you choose to grow in that. You don't have to grow, though, and a lot of people don't. A lot of people are content with just making sure they're loved by God, and that's it, and that is missing the mark, and that missing the mark is called sin. Sin is the culpable disturbance of shalom. And so therefore, our decision to not choose to invest in this life of God is a decision we do to ourselves. It's something that God does not want for us. It's not something God has for us. It's something we do our, to ourselves. We shackle ourselves and we choose not to grow in this amazing real reality of God's love for us. But if we choose to do it, if we choose to think through, I am loved by God, it changes the way we feel about ourselves, the way we think about other people, because we can't not be changed by love. That's what love does. It constantly takes us deeper. It constantly calls us higher, not in an exhaustive, punitive way like you better or else, but you are invited to see more. There is more to life than you've settled for. And it is all stemming from the creative love of God, which is the source of creation in an expanding universe that will continue and continue and continue. When you are overwhelmed by the love of God, you change, not because you have to, because you can't help it. You start to see people differently, and it starts to impact what you do with your life. Whereas in your former life, before you really owned the good news, you might have all kinds of attitudes and words associated with those attitudes toward other people and yourself. But as you become uh, filled with this love of God and really believe in its reality and start to live in that reality, you can no longer say such things about yourself or other people. And it affects your money to bring it right back home. When you are filled with the love of God, it is very difficult for you to just look at your budget and your money and say, what's in it for me, myself, and I? 
because you know, because you're rooted in the love for God, you live in a world that needs help. There are people that need help. And when you look at your resources, you're like, what can I possibly do to help? Because that is what God does all the time. The more we are grounded and founded and growing in the love of God, the more apt we are to actually reflect the things that God loves. And our callousness toward issues and concerns that we don't want to talk about before we really receive the gospel, once we have been fully changed by the gospel, we can't not think about these things. Whereas before our prejudice ruled the day, once the love of God takes root, we see through a loving Father's eyes at people who are suffering. And we have to do something. We have to do something. And it changes the way we spend our money. It means that if we want to do something, it means we look at how we've orchestrated our finances and we start to make changes. We start to figure out where we can tighten up the ship here, where I can say no to that or settle for a little less on that, where I can eliminate subscriptions here and there so that I can do more out of love for God and love for my neighbor. You end up with the same behavior as the fear approach, but from a very different place. Now you're doing it not because of fear and not because of expectation of reward. You're doing it because you're in lockstep with the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is generous at all times with love. And so naturally, if you're walking hand in hand with God, you're going to look a lot more God-like the more you grow. And you're not going to be controlled by the hierarchy of our world that is always about transaction. Instead, you're going to be living from a different drummer. You're going to be living from a different order altogether, one that the world knows nothing about, where you recognize fully you have come from dust, and to dust you will return. And therefore, you're going to be wise and not selfish with your stuff. You're going to figure out how to be a good steward with what you have for the things that God actually cares about. I don't know what that looks like for you but I hope you'll let it mess with you. I hope like the letter inside your bulletin, I hope you won't just hear this today and go have Starbucks and catch the Niners. I hope that you'll actually think about this. If it means that I'm loved by God, and that's really true, what does it mean for me as a person trying to live in the way of Jesus? What does it mean for me to do that same thing, to ask those same questions with what I do with my funds? Because they can make a huge difference. By the way, you may not be aware of this, but I am the pastor of Crosswalk Community Church. <laughs> and I want to tell you, uh, I'm so grateful for the support that you give. This, this whole thing is not a sales pitch for Crosswalk, but it's a celebration of your generosity that we have made it through many, many storms. See, there's heaven calling right now to agree with me uh, that this is exactly what God wants to say. And I mean it. Uh, we have been through uh, quite a journey uh, in this church, way before I was born. This church started in 1860, and it's faithful people uh, and in their season that recognize the love of God, recognize that the love of God is being communicated through this space, and wanted to be a part of that. And so as the current pastor, one of many more to come, I hope, uh, I want to thank you, uh, because the love of God has been able to get communicated more and more through this place to different people because of the people who are in love with God and just can't help but be generous. So I thank you for that. 
So uh, I hope I've made you uncomfortable in every possible way. We've talked about racism. We've talked about immigration. We've talked about being dusty people. We've talked about pride and hierarchy and how that's all fiction. And it's not really the way uh, God works. And now we've talked about your pocketbook. So in the words of, uh, words of Ruth Vigneault, uh, who every time I would do a sermon like this, um, she would say, Pastor, you move from preaching to meddling. <laughs> And I would smile as big as she was every time she would say that. But the Holy Spirit meddles, not in a punitive, you better else way, because God loves you that much. God wants you to experience the fullness of life and the freedom that comes with the life born of the Spirit of God. That's what you're invited to. Today, we're just asking the question, what does that mean for how we spend our money? Let's pray together. So God, we are all the rich guy in this story. Every one of us, even if we've made the decision in our past to, to try to live in the way, we are so surrounded and immersed in the rich guy's culture, especially here in the United States, where comparatively we're rich. We don't even know it. So I pray that your spirit will do its work and Provide us a mirror and help us see that the Spirit brings a key to the shackles, that we might be released from a, from a culture and a false perspective of having to earn our way to everything. May we experience the true freedom that you offer. May we see that and saying yes to you, yeah, we, we actually have gained a broader family of other people on the way and difficulty. But the difficulty is for everything that's good. So God, may your spirit work in us, remind us that we're deeply loved and that that love is supposed to be like a seed that grows and eventually bears fruit. May we be very fruitful, dusty people. To that end, we pray the prayer that you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for coming today. Hope you had a good experience. I hope it was more refreshing than painful. And we hope to see you next week. Go Giants!